You're listening to The Robin and Boom Show, engaging the contemporary world with the great tradition. Find us on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, or on our website at robinmarkphillips.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, here's today's co-host, Robin Phillips. Hello, Jason. How are you? Okay, Robin, how are you doing? Oh, pretty good. I'm struggling with a cold, so you'll have to pardon if my voice sounds a bit weird. But what's going on in your academic life right now? Well, I've recently given a lecture at the University of Tartu, one of the top universities in the world here in beautiful Estonia in Northeastern Europe. I was giving a lecture on the rise of Arabic philosophy in the Middle East with its origins to a large extent among Syriac-speaking Christians, talking about thinkers such as Avicenna or Ibn Sina. And among the topics is the question of the ordering of the soul. What's the relationship between the soul and its different powers? How does that fit into a broader view of life? Wow. And that actually relates to the topic of today's episode. We we have a guest with us, Michael Jester, and I met him through a conference at Gonzaga recently on how pornography is rewiring the brain. He was one of the speakers, and we found we had a lot in common. So hello, Michael. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Jason and Robin. Good to be with you guys today. Yeah. So um, Michael uh, works as a, a social worker in Spokane. He um, helps people with the various problems that people struggle with in today's world, like addiction, um, anxiety, and depression. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your work, Michael? Sure. Yeah, so I work through a faith-based private practice. I've worked with a lot of uh, young men, um, some uh, pastors w- who have struggled with the addiction stuff, and uh, really tried to focus in on kind of integrating uh, faith, uh, tradition, along with kind of what current psychology practices are around dealing with addictive behaviors. Okay, so so Michael, how, how does a social worker like yourself become interested in the liberal arts? Yeah, Robin, good question. Um, so I'm a young family. Uh, we've got four kids. Our oldest is six. And so we've started exploring, well, what kind of education can we give our kids? And naturally, I consider what's the best um, for mental health benefits as well and protective factors from things like addiction or trauma, depression, anxiety. And so in exploring that, it kind of came into um, some friends actually first mentioned to me the classical uh, model of education. Uh, They make use of the well-trained mind and he had shared some about the classics through that. And so that just kind of led me on this great exploration of adventure of what is classical education and how would I want to use that uh, as a resource for my kids. And then it's just kind of expanded. And the beautiful thing about that education is it affects so many different areas that I'm seeing it now have impact in how I do practice. Okay. And I want to ask you about some of those areas, but, but, I'm realizing that some some of our listeners may not know what we even mean by classical education. Uh, Jason, do you want to have a bash at that? I mean, what is classical education? That's a good question, Robin. You know, as uh, classical education becomes more popular, in some ways perhaps even trendy, there's a danger of it becoming an empty concept. 
Now, as you know, in the original sense, classical education simply meant an education based on the classics, meaning the literature of Greece and Rome. And, you know, during the Middle Ages, right up through Renaissance, early modernity, to the time of people like C.S. Lewis and Mortimer Adler, a well-educated person was simply expected to be versed in literature, history, and languages of Greece and Rome. So the writings of figures like Plato, Aristotle, poems of people like Homer and Virgil, they just formed part of an intellectual backdrop, which was an something you could expect people to share. It was part of a common discourse in American and European society. Now, classical education is based on the notion that we cannot appreciate the cultural common ground in Western societies such as America and Europe without reference to more ancient tradition. For example, we can't understand the thought of Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Edmund Burke. We can't understand Dante, sculptures of Michelangelo, Shakespeare, the actions of Napoleon, Disraeli, without reference to Greek and Roman heritage, which has traditionally formed a, a common bond. And you know, as the Christian era progressed and gradually developed in its own literature, the idea of classical education span and include familiarity with an emerging canon. So that's where the idea of great books education comes in. We want students to feel home reading the works of church fathers, such as Augustine, Basil the Great, John Chrysostom, medieval writers such as Boethius, Thomas Aquinas, more recent authors, Hume, Coleridge, Dickens, Tolstoy, Tolkien, Solzhenitsyn, you name it. But classical education isn't just about books. You know, it's not a reading club. The ultimate goal of classical education is supposed to be liberal in the original sense of that word meaning free. If you are free, what do you do with your free time? Well, what's proper for a free human being is a life of virtue, pursuit of wisdom and beauty. So the study of these authors, these canonical texts, the expectation is that we're developing certain habits, certain ethical practices, a way of leading our life in a harmonious manner. So it's impossible to talk about the classical education without bringing in the ethical component. And the classical sense of ethics is about virtues, habits, powers of the soul, psychological formation. Thank you, Jason, for that excellent description of the nature and importance of classical education. The last point you made about ethics, that touches on something I w- want us to, to look at, because it seems like today in our society, emotional disorders are on the rise, and yet increasingly we give attention to emotions in a way that, that disconnects the emotional life from virtue. And virtue becomes disconnected from the rest of life by being about mere behavior and choices, rather than both emotion and virtue being contextualized within an idea of human flourishing and in this holistic ordering of the soul that was was a feature of classical ethics and, and also a feature of Christian theology for most of, of um, 
church history. So, so what you're left with then is all these different parts of a person's life, the emotional side, the athletic side, the intellectual side, the moral side, and they're all disconnected from each other and they all have their own criteria for what it means to excel in those areas. But of course, when everything is disconnected like this, you lose the notion that the right ordering of the soul through intellectual formation, the habits of virtue, you, that, that that can have any relevance on emotional health. So, so we're just left with a very reductionistic view of the human person and therefore of, of human emotion. And I'll give you an example of what, what this reductionism looks like in practice we have this this idea that and this is even if psychologists um, will tell us that this is simplistic on street level there's this very pervasive notion that pleasant feelings need to be cultivated and unpleasant feelings to be abated and avoided and this is behind so much of the disordered pleasures and substance abuse that are so so common now. You, you at all costs you 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 ramp up pleasant emotions and you decrease uh, unpleasant emotions because there isn't any wider understanding in which we can have a coherent uh, understanding of of human emotions within a larger understanding of what it means to actually f- flourish. So. So, Michael, how can classical education help with a right ordering of the emotions? You mentioned earlier about anxiety and depression. So how, how can a good liberal arts education help buffer us from these and other types of disorders? Right. And I, I think what you're asking, Robin, kind of goes back to the very roots of what is that education. And what classical has done, in my perspective, is it organizes the liberal arts well. For instance, I went to a liberal arts college having no idea how things were supposed to be connected and ordered through kind of this reaching back in the historical. And I'll come back to that historical component in a moment. But first, just simply that word liberal, right, has to do with this idea of freedom. And when we talk about anxiety and depression, right, it's one of the components within what we're dealing with in contrast to, you know, as psychologists, as counselors, we see people with what we would call psychotic um, disorders, like think schizophrenia, but then with anxiety and depression, it's what would have traditionally been called more of a neurotic type of thing. And that is that this has more to do with life experiences rather than just um, the wiring of the brain that you're born with, right? So it, in that, when people struggle with those things, they start to look for solutions. And that's why we see a rise in addiction in a lot of ways in our culture today. And what is addiction but slavery, right? So it comes right back around to this idea of freedom, right? That what the classics are presenting in, the, in this liberal arts tradition is how can the human being be most free? And that's incredibly important when we're looking at, well, how do we help people who are struggling with addiction find freedom from that addiction? And it's not just about, you know, what what 
drug can we apply? You know, what's the latest method in psychology and counseling technique to make this happen? But it's really a lifestyle change. And the liberal arts does that in, in an amazing way. Um, I'm finding more and more as I learn more about it. Wow, thank you. So, so could you give us some specific examples of like the sorts of things that go on in the classroom that lead to this kind of freeing uh, posture that you're describing? Sure. Yeah, and and I'll I'll, I'll take one um, one very specific to an individual person, and then there's another example I'll mention that just within the context of the curriculum itself does some of this. So the first one that comes to mind is this personal interaction that happens within a classical classroom in contrast to what you might see in general educational models. So for example, in the Charlotte Mason method, which is a type of, uh, of classical, I would say, um, there's a real emphasis on connection with the person. Uh, I, I had first heard this through Dr. Uh, Bill St. Cyr of the Ambleside schools, and he was talking about this joy connection that they try to go for in the classroom being, it's good to be me with you. That's what he defines joy as, is this experience of it's good to be me with you. And they begin the day by making this eye contact of connection and relating with one another. And that's continued throughout the classes as they listen and participate and show interest. What we call that today from an attachment perspective is this experience of integrated neuropsychology. This has been developed by uh, a Dr. Siegel, and he talks about the importance for a child of having that type of eye contact and connection in really protecting them from the things that can cause anxiety and depression. And so that's a very specific example of just the way the teacher child pedagogy is set up within classical is it allows for more of that encounter to happen um, on a broader scale now when we're talking about particularly the curriculum well the richness of the history component right is emphasized in the classical in a lot of ways i think jason was kind of mentioning that in his definition of kind of going back to those ethics components and whatnot the moral underpinnings of it creates a huge protective factor when we look at the connection between memory and emotion, right? So there's a lot to do with pain in this dynamic of mental health, of a strong uh, identity and, and protecting ourselves from what could come at us from other relationships, from people uh, hurting us. So what history does, right? is it takes us out of kind of this small bubble of self and it shows kind of this broader view of being human and how people have dealt with these kind of struggles in the past, right? In virtuous, ethical ways, some who haven't done it so well. But what does that do? It gives your memory a broader bank to draw from when the emotions are brought up. Right. So that's in contrast to someone who's got no memory store of kind of the history of humankind. And even if they have components of it, it's not ordered very well. 
whereas the liberal arts classical tradition tries to order it very much towards the virtue and moral life, that when we have that, right, it basically gives the body a whole nother uh, resource to draw from. So those would be two specific examples, the particulars of the relationship between the teacher and the student in emphasizing a strength of identity within the child, a sense of value, and then the history as a subject, allowing them this broader connection of relationships to protect them from what might cause anxiety and depression through pain. Interesting. So I would like to actually address about the second part first, about history as a kind of extended memory. That's something I've thought about myself too, that part of the reason for saying history is it's taking us beyond our own individual memories and expanding them. It's a kind of prosthetic memory in a way. And you're saying that can help a student bypass trauma that can be an obstacle to learning. Right. That when you're bringing them into this bigger picture, right, that they realize, one, they're not alone in having experienced pain and trauma, right? So that they're, they're able to draw from that bigger community of resources of how do I deal with this pain that I felt? Right? And that's crucial. And it's, it's bringing together intellect and memory as well, right? So when we're talking those faculties of the soul, it's bringing these components together, which, again, we have different terminology for it within the psychology field, but that's bringing in intentionality, self-awareness, self-knowledge, uh, these components that allow us to navigate and what we would call kind of the executive functioning of the brain in spite of the emotional intensity we might feel with pain. Wow. So I, I love the way you're describing you're describing education in such a holistic way as more than just information, uh, which is historically in the in the classical tradition in Greek, Greece and Rome, as well as in in, in the, the Christian tradition throughout the the Middle Ages until recently, uh, education has been seen in this in this holistic way. But I think we 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 think about uh, schooling now as simply the acquiring of of information, um, and even if it has a practical component it tends to be uh purely pragmatic so the, the kids can get a good job and so forth we we've lost this idea of of the right order of the soul i i think or at least at least the role that education can play within that right robin well and, and what's interesting and to me is recently in this area where i'm at in spokane washington is uh a lot of the schools are adopting a model to deal with trauma in the children because they're seeing that's becoming an obstacle to that education you're speaking of, which is primarily a functional um, perspective on education. And, and this is kind of where my social work background comes in, is we're very much interested in prevention rather than having to deal with the problem once it's happened. And it's like the liberal arts, the classical is kind of this preventative approach to giving children tools and resources, right? In incredibly rich. And I, I, I would clarify too, I would not narrow down the classical just as a mental health solution. It has incredible benefits beyond that. 
But when you focus in on the mental health component, it's fascinating in how much it does to prevent and protect from a lot of, of, of what we're dealing with in our culture. Yeah, interesting. So I, I did some curriculum development for six different universities on integrating mindfulness in the classroom. So you, using things like s- slow breathing and emotional intelligence to, to help increase grades, cut down on bullying, help with teacher stress and so forth. But even then it was still just kind of putting a bandaid over the symptoms uh, because you're dealing, you're dealing with a model of emotional health that basically doesn't have a framework outside of unpleasant emotions are bad, pleasant emotions need to be cultivated. So there isn't the idea of a human nature that can be aligned to the objective reality of of what actually is is the case um, in, in in our world, and I'm just wondering what some of the factors are that have have got us so far away from the the classical type of anthropology and ethical understandings that used to undergird education. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an excellent. Uh, Excellent um, point. And, and as you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, it, again, there's that component of how essential it is to know even that history, right? We're coming back to that theme of history and what's led us to this point. And I think the only thing I could really comment on from my end is it seems like education as a general public service comes back to a lowest common denominator rather than kind of within that classical tradition, kind of like the Socrates drawing people to kind of higher goals of education, we're kind of settling for this, well, what can everybody learn, right? And let's settle for that instead of pushing people to kind of these higher visions of uh, moral life, but intellectual life as well. Yeah. Now, I'm thank you for that. I, I'm glad you mentioned earlier about Charlotte Mason, and I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Um, the reason I ask is because we have a we run a small homeschool co-op at, at our church, and we've been very inspired by by Charlotte Mason's uh, approach or holistic view of of education, and I think that that can act as a buffer against. Um, what can be rationalistic tendencies in the modern classical school movement? Could you talk to us a little more about that? Yeah, well, it, and I think you're you're bringing up something that we're kind of alluding to in that earlier question, and I think this is good. Is one of the reasons I would speculate that we moved away from the classical method in one regard was because it was too rationalistic, right? We became too focused on the emphasis on memorization, right? Rather than using the memory in a way that integrated with the emotions, right? That integrated with the whole person. So when we started exploring the classical, there was a lot to like about it. But one of the things that I kind of balked at was this component of some people see it in a pretty rigid structure where it's the memorization of facts and it's less personal. So I started kind of before knowing about Charlotte Mason, I kind of coined this idea of a warm classical, like this idea of 
kind of the emotional life being deeply connected with the classical. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the new development within and the uh, renewal of the classical uh, teachers are doing this. They know that that's needed to bring in more of that emotional connection. So I don't think it's, it's really um, widespread, but there are some groups that probably still keep it too much on the rationalistic side. What Charlotte Mason does is her emphasis on it being about the person rather than the method, I think gives teachers a freedom to really focus in on the connection. This is one of the other components I'm factoring in as I'm looking at what's the best uh, mental health wellness perspective for education um, for long-term benefit is it also includes the family. And what Charlotte Mason really did was she developed an education model that really involved parents. And I think that's, you know, like you're mentioning with your co-op, that's one of the beauties of it is it allows for those kind of educational models to happen where it's less reliant on a state or, uh, you know, even a private organization or faith tradition and more for the family to kind of recognize this is how I can form my child in the liberal arts, in the classical tradition. Um, so I just think there's a ton of benefits. I, I kind of stumbled upon her, but it was, it was a very happy stumbling upon because she just captures very well, you know, and, and for those of you who don't know who Charlotte Mason was, you know, she's early 1900s, um, maybe even a little bit earlier than that, had been developing this and, uh, you know, kind of a fun side note for anyone out there who's a Chesterton reader. Um, Chesterton's wife, Frances, actually worked for Charlotte Mason for a while and really liked the the pedagogy of education that she was offering. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, c- I can see that uh, Chesterton's perspective in his writings is very, very compatible with, with that. Um, it's interesting, but you mentioned about the the f- just focus on memorization. I I taught at a classical school once. I taught history, and my my supervisor said it really doesn't matter. <clears throat> He's talking about the younger the younger grades in the so called grammar stage. Uh, it really doesn't matter what they're memorizing. They could even be memorizing numbers out of the phone book, and it would still be classical because of the focus on memorization. <laughs> and I, now the, that that's uh, all typical, but 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 it 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 does get to what what can be be the sort of dark side of classical education, a misunderstood classical education, where it's just like okay, we're we just the memorization of raw facts, or or we just have higher standards and so forth. Right, and what Charlotte Mason would respond is. You know, if it's real, right, if you're memorizing the the policeman's phone number or the butcher's phone number or something, that's useful memorization. But if it's not useful, right, this is a person you're educating. Why are you just um, inserting computational facts without a purpose? Yes, yes. And many teachers and administrators defend the learning of Latin on exactly those grounds that, oh, this is good for the brain. Uh, this is hard, it's good for the brain and so forth. Well, I mean, they could do crossword puzzles or, or that would be good for the brain. But, um, and I, I'm in favor of learning Latin, but we need to look beyond simply that, oh yeah, this is, th- th- this is good because it means that we have 
high standards or because this is what a good classically educated person does. Well, why why do, do classically educated people learn Latin? And that's where we, we come back to some of these deeper questions. And I know we're going to have to be going soon, uh, but, uh, but do I have do I have time to just share a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think really gets to the heart of some of the things we're talking about? Let me let me just add to what you were saying real quick, and this will kind of be my my wrap up as well. Um, but before you do that, I've got a couple minutes. Uh, I think what you're pointing to is exactly why this is such a relevant topic today of kind of separating something out like Latin and just doing it for the sake of doing Latin being good for the brain, right? This is one of the things that concerns me in our tradition with psychology and counseling is we're starting to fragment things off. And the analogy I've started reflecting it on through is this idea of dissection of the body, right? That students in science will dissect the body to learn the parts of the body, but they can't put the body back together. Once it's dissected, they cannot put it back together. And with the liberal arts, the classical tradition is gives a whole body, right? So that Latin fits into some other component of a whole, right? And it's very important that we give our kids something that protects them from this fragmentation on the psychological level, but also on the spiritual level, right? That we're talking about these components really give the child a wholeness that our culture, at least here in America, is really working away from, right? We take off small bits and then we try to sell it. And it happens a lot, unfortunately, in uh, my discipline of psychology, of we'll take something like mindfulness, right? And sell mindfulness apart from, right? A kind of a greater vision of who is the human person or, you know, and, and so we just kind of, Really, this classical model of education, when we use it intentionally, when we recognize its benefits in connection to our emotional lives, can really be a solution that doesn't cost much when you think about it in comparison to uh, the repercussions of addiction and those kind of effects on our society. Wow. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Uh, do you have anything to add, Jason, or shall I move on to C.S. Lewis? Move on to Mr. Lewis. Okay, so I've quoted before from his book, The Abolition of Man, and he's talking here about the role of, of emotion in education. And he explains that uh, until recently, the goal of education is to cultivate in the human animal the right responses to feel, this is a quote now, to feel pleasure, liking, disgust, and hatred at those things which really are pleasant, likable, disgusting, and hateful. And then the later, to give delighted praise to beauty, receiving it into his soul and being nourished by it so that he, <clears throat> so that he becomes a man of gentle heart. This is, this is what he's saying the classical goal of education is. And quoting again from Lewis, he writes, certain attitudes are really true and others really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of things we are. Until quite modern times, all teachers and even all men believed the universe to be such that certain emotional reactions on our part could be either congruous or incongruous to it, believed, in fact, that objects did not merely receive 
but could merit our approval or disapproval, our reverence or our contempt, unquote. So he's he's suggesting that an important role of education is the formation of the right responses within within the student, um, a, a view of human flourishing that has the right order of the soul at its center. And I think this really gets to the heart of some of the observations you're making, Michael. Absolutely. And, and nobody can say it better than C.S. Lewis. Well, very good. Thank you so much. This, is, this has been a fascinating discussion, and I hope that we'll have an opportunity to have you on our show again in the days ahead. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. The Robin and Boom Show is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. To become a patron of the show, go to robinmarkphillips.com and select The Robin Boom Show from the drop-down menu. If you have questions you'd like to have addressed on a future episode, send us a message through our Facebook page. Once again, thanks for listening.